Thank you, choir and orchestra. I just feel like I need to, like, stop for about five or ten minutes and weep. <laughs> it was so compelling. Come to Jesus and rest. And that really is the message of this morning. We live in a world of turmoil, and that world of turmoil is not just outside of us, but inside of us. And no one but Jesus can fix us. No one but Jesus can give us rest. And it doesn't matter how accomplished we are or how hard we've tried or what our pedigree is or what our education is. We need Jesus or we are lost. Nicodemus was a sincere man, well-studied in the Holy Scriptures, disciplined, separated, mature, respected, a leader of leaders, but his heart hungered for more. He knew, he knew in his heart of hearts that this wasn't enough. And so he went to the right person to find answers, Jesus. He did so by night to avoid the problems his visit might cause with his colleagues, many of whom already hated Jesus because of how disruptive Jesus was to their prominence and their power in the community. He knew that many of them were fakes. It's possible Nicodemus also went by night to have time for uninterrupted conversation with the Lord. Nicodemus was well known and sought after, and Jesus was already very popular in gaining a crowd. But Jesus' response to Nicodemus set his head spinning. Jesus talked about a life change that Nicodemus had never experienced in all his long years of devotion. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot experience this kingdom for which Nicodemus longed. Jesus had hit upon exactly what Nicodemus was seeking, but being born again was a foreign concept. How is it even possible? And what steps could he take to experience this life from God? With that question just nagging at his heart, the conversation continues in John chapter 3 and verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. And you, that is you plural, not just Nicodemus, but his colleagues, do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I've entitled our message this morning, Crossroads, because there are three basic crossroads centered on the cross of Jesus that are presented to Nicodemus on this fateful night and are indeed presented to us. The first crossroad is a crossroad between faith and unbelief, verses 9 through 13. Both the Scriptures, the testimony of the Scriptures, and the testimony of Christ, the Son of Man, are presented to us, and we are brought to a decision point. We have to decide, are they telling me the truth or not? It is a crossroads of faith or belief. And there's the crossroads of eternal life or condemnation in verses 14 through 18. Eternal life has been provided through Jesus, God's Son. He's been delivered up for us that we might not perish. But if we do not receive Him, if we do not believe in Him, then we choose to remain condemned. And then finally, it is a crossroads between light or darkness. The light is shown, and the question is, will you step into the light? Will you let the light have its effect on your darkness? Crossroads. This first crossroads is the crossroads between faith or unbelief. Look again at Nicodemus' words to Jesus. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher in Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Nicodemus is is hung up on how these things are possible. He's trained in a religious system of how-tos and of precise human definitions. The law and how to keep it how to safeguard it, how to expand it to every particular of your life. But what Jesus has presented is not what any human being can do to be saved, but what the Spirit of God must do to save that individual. Nicodemus is trying to figure out how being born again works. Jesus is declaring that it works and that it's the only thing that does. In other words, it's not a matter so much of your understanding how does this work, but of believing that it works, that this is the only way. Sometimes, particularly if you're one of those persons that more an engineering mind and and you, you like to know how things work, not just... It's not just a matter to you. You get in your car and you start it and it goes someplace. You want to know how it functions. How does it work? And you want to understand that. There are different people who are wired that way. Others say, well, who cares as long as the car runs, okay? 
Well, Nicodemus is one of these engineering types. He says, how does this work? How is this possible? And he's also asking the question because it's something he's unfamiliar with. And Jesus addresses that deficiency. Jesus answers the question, how can these things be, with another question, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Like, how can you even ask the question how it works? Because you teach the Scriptures in Israel, and you ought to know. Nicodemus was among the leading teachers of the Scriptures in Israel, and yet his question reveals that he does not know what the Scriptures reveal regarding the powerful, life-giving work of the Holy Spirit. We expect the pagan world to be ignorant of these spiritual things, but many seriously religious people are as well, including those who call themselves Christians. We have our catechisms and service orders, and religious disciplines, and hymns of worship. But participation in any and all of these does not guarantee that we have spiritual life from God. We must be born again with life from above. And despite what Jesus teaches here and and how the apostles talk about the necessity of regeneration, being born again, having life from God, it's astonishing how common it is for professing Christians, including preachers and leaders, to be utterly blind to the work of the Spirit and the necessity of His movement in their lives if we are to be saved. In fact, I would say the danger is greater for preachers and teachers of God's Word. Because it becomes a profession, it becomes a way of doing things, it becomes a protocol, it becomes something we're familiar with. I remember one preacher once describing it this way, it's, it's, it, it's like you, you're traveling this bus that's going cross-country, and you imagine that you've been to all the places that it stops because you pull the cord for it to stop. But you never get off and actually experience it. And it's possible for a preacher and a teacher of the Word to actually talk about spiritual things lots and never actually experience life from God. Our churches actually are full of people like that. Why? Because we we get used to the culture of Christianity. We get used to the protocol. We get used to the process. but, But there is no spirit of life. You see, the thing about the Spirit's movement is that you you can't quantify it. You can't achieve it with some kind of formula or or some incantation. You, You can't reach spiritual life through multiplying your techniques or your religious rules. You can't bring life to people through vision statements and mission statements and core values and strategic planning. None of that brings life to people. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. And, and that's, that's a little off-putting because we want to know what we need to do to live this kind of life. And Jesus says, God has to give this to you. You need life from God. You're, you are hopeless without it. He's got to give this to you. The Spirit, the Spirit has to give you life. To experience eternal life from God, to experience the kingdom of God, we need nothing short of a spiritual resurrection. That's why the Scriptures call us a new creation in Christ. It's like God says, let there be light, and there's light. He says, let 
let you know the world team with creatures and the world teams with living creatures he breathes into man after he makes him out of the dust of the ground the breath of life that's that's the kind of thing that needs to happen and many, many of us here have been, I mean, by this point in our lives, thousands of church services. We've sat among, we've heard the word taught, we've, we've done religious things for years and years and years and years and years. And, and the reality is that as you, as you think about, as you experience these things, you know that on any given Sunday or on any given weeknight, whenever the word is preached, the word of God goes out, the spirit goes out, and there's certain ones that God works on. And others are just blind as bats to what's going on. They're impervious. It just goes over like water over a stone. And, and a person can be like that for years, and suddenly, and suddenly the Spirit of God finds a crack in that stone and goes deep into that person's heart and says, you, and brings the person to life. And, and over the years, and I'm sure that, that those who have ministered among people and taught the Word can talk to you about how this happens. And you say, well, how do you explain this? I can't explain it. It's just that the Spirit of God does it. He just does it. God's compassion shows not just God the Father and God the Son, but God the Spirit in giving life to people. And, and Jesus speaks of what He personally knows to be reality. He says, we speak about what we know. And when he says we, he may be referring to himself in the Old Testament prophets, or maybe himself and John the Baptist, or maybe himself and even the disciples, although it's a, a little early for them to be teaching yet. But Jesus, the point is Jesus is bearing firsthand testimony to the reality of the Spirit's work. And, and his question about Nicodemus being a teacher of Israel brings up the reality that, that the Old Testament bears testimony to this phenomenon as well. That, that Jesus is basing this on what the Old Testament teaches, but Nicodemus and his fellow Pharisees do not receive Jesus' testimony. The U is plural. And they do not believe it. Their system doesn't account for this kind of movement of God. It doesn't allow for it. It doesn't have room for it and it will not yield to it because the system has to be preserved. The Scriptures talk of the Spirit's work and the effect of the Spirit on persons is clear for anyone to see who's paying attention. So if Nicodemus and his cronies can't accept what they can see in the lives of people, how will they believe the heavenly things that Jesus will teach? Things that you can't verify from earth. How will they believe when Jesus talks about a future resurrection? It hasn't happened yet. How will they believe when he says he's the judge of all the earth? How will they believe about things that are yet to be? That the Spirit of God is going to actually lead Jesus uh, and, and the apostles to teach the New Testament. How are they going to believe that? You, you can't quantify that. You can't verify that. By the time you can verify it, it's too late. Jesus says, you don't believe what you can even verify. You don't believe what the Scriptures even talk about. So added to the verifiable testimony of the Scriptures is that of the Son of Man, Jesus Himself, it was His favorite term for Himself, who has come down from heaven. And we don't, you know, we don't talk about that. I mean, unless you're, you know, maybe I've seen some, some baby announcements where they have storks bringing a baby down from heaven, but that, you know, 
we don't talk about people coming down from heaven. We talk about their being born. Jesus came down from heaven. He is the Son of Man. There's no one else like him. He's the fulfillment of the one Daniel saw in the night visions, who will judge the world at the end of the age. Listen to Daniel's words in Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, like, look, attention. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, a Son of Man. So here you have a human being coming from heaven. You expect angels to come from heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Remember Nicodemus in his mind is, you know, is, is Jesus the key to getting into the kingdom? So Nicodemus is brought back by Jesus' words to this kingdom issue and And Jesus' words bring him and us to a crossroads. Will we believe the Scriptures or not? Will we believe Jesus, the unique Son of Man, or not? Both the Scriptures and the Son testify to the truth that is verifiable even here on earth. It is a crossroads of faith or belief. Nicodemus must choose, and so must we. In fact, this will be the indictment. Jesus says in John 15, talking about the persecution that his followers would endure and the persecution he himself has endured, he says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus revealed the truth to them. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Why? Because the father sent him. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word is written in their law, must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Jesus' enemies knew that he taught like no other person they'd ever heard. That he had insights like no one else they'd ever met that he could see right down to the depths of their soul, that he would talk about what they were thinking in their hearts before they even said it. They knew that he was doing miracles to the level of even raising the dead. They didn't dispute that he was doing miracles. They had to claim that he was doing it by the power of Satan. They knew that Jesus is no ordinary prophet, no ordinary man, that, that he brought them to a crossroads of decision. And many of them decided wrongly. And Jesus said, that's your indictment. You're guilty because you heard and you would not come to me. You're guilty because you saw and you would not come to me. I mean, on what basis will you relegate what the Scriptures say to irrelevance and lies over 40 different authors, 1,500 years worth of testimony with, a, with a, a unified theme. And why would you refuse what Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, declares to be true? I mean, the whole, the, the whole world, even those that don't believe in him, think that he's good. Well, if he's good, then why wouldn't you believe what he says? 
Why would you not receive what God has revealed through the sacred writings of the prophets, the first-hand testimony to what God has said and what God has done? I mean, these are historical records of God's intervention in the history of the world. Why would you just throw that out and then say, oh, there's no evidence? That's just totally dishonest. And why would you ignore Jesus Christ and the historical first-hand testimony about what he taught and what he did? There's never been anyone else like him. Isn't it obvious, even from an earthly human perspective, that we sinful, mortal human beings, and that's without question. You don't have to be a believer to believe that. You know, people do wrong things and mean things and harmful things, and you don't have to, you don't have to be a, a Christian to know that people die. Look at all the funerals every year. Isn't it obvious we desperately need life from God? We need a new beginning, not, not, not just getting a new formula, not just turning over a new leaf. We need something that changes us all the way down to the depths of who we are from the inside out. That's obvious. How could we ever hope of escaping the curse of sin and the bondage of death or experiencing the eternal joys of the heavenly kingdom if God doesn't do it for us? How could anything or anyone but God accomplish such a transformation? And why would we stonewall the united testimony of the prophets, the apostles, and Jesus the Messiah himself that this life can be yours, but only through the Holy Spirit of God? And added to their testimony, what will we do with the centuries full of examples of people who've experienced exactly the transformation Jesus talks about here? It changed the trajectory of their lives. It, it impacted and redirected whole civilizations. How do we ignore all that? So this brings us to a crossroads between faith and unbelief. Have you received or rejected the testimony of the Scriptures regarding receiving life from God, and why? If you've received it, why was that? If, you, if you've rejected it, why? And second, have you believed or refused the testimony of Jesus Christ regarding the life that the Spirit gives? Why did you believe? Why did you refuse? A crossroads of faith and unbelief. Second, it is a crossroads also of eternal life or condemnation. Verse 14, Jesus goes on talking about the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, he loved the world in this way, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Perhaps you've noticed on medical buildings the the emblem of two snakes intertwined on a pole. It's called the rod of, I don't even know if I can say the guy's name. It's Greek to me. Esculapius. At least that's what it looks like. 
It's symbolic of the Greek God of healing. But the emblem of a snake on a pole goes back further than Greek mythology. It goes back to the days of Moses. And the healing it speaks of is a rescue from death itself. We read about it in Numbers 21. During the wilderness wanderings, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we'd loathe this worthless food. They're talking about manna. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. By the way, moms and dads, you know, if your kids are complaining about their their food, you might want to take them to this passage. (laughs) Just a thought. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Notice they said, pray that he would take away the serpents from them, but God's going to do something greater. So God, Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The only cure for the poisonous bite of the fiery serpent was to look in faith to the bronze serpent on the pole. The only cure for the deadly sin poison running in our veins is to look in faith to Jesus, lifted up to die on the cross for our sin. It is the look of faith, just a look. No set of rituals, no list of deeds, no reparations to pay. He paid it all, all to him we owe. It was necessary for Christ to be lifted up so that everyone believing in him may have eternal life immortality. There is no other way. And pay attention to why Jesus came. He came to die for your sin and mine, to rescue us from death and judgment. If we see Jesus as just a good man or a popular prophet, we've missed the point of why God sent him to earth. He's not just an example. He's the only Savior that God has provided for us. God could have let us die from our deadly sin bite. He could have let us die and then created his new world that was perfect, just like he could have gotten rid of the serpents and let everybody that had been bit by the serpents go ahead and die. But he loved the world of sin-infected human beings in this way, that he gave his monogonesis, his one-of-a-kind son, so that everyone believing into him may not perish, not be ruined or destroyed, but have life eternal. His love does not guarantee that all the world will end up with eternal life, but that all in the world who believe into Christ, leading the way to their trust into Him, will have eternal life instead of perishing for their sin. God sent Jesus, His Son, into the world not to judge it, but to save it. If all He wanted to do was judge it, God the Son could have stayed in heaven and never gone to the cross. To save means to rescue. 
means to heal or to deliver. And in the wilderness, those who looked in faith to the bronze serpent on the pole lived. Those who did not look in faith died. And in the same way, all of us have suffered the fiery poison fangs of sin. We are already condemned. We are already dying. Isn't it obvious? We already have sin infecting every part of who we are, even if we keep parts of it at bay. Our only hope of rescue is to look in faith to Christ. And if we do not, the sin poison running in our veins will kill us. Not just physically, but spiritually. Romans 7, Paul talks about this. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We're all dying. We're all poisoned. There is no hope unless we look in faith. And if we do, we're given life. Eternal life or condemnation, it's a crossroads. So each of us have to ask ourselves, when, when do you start trusting in Christ to rescue you from sin's deadly poison by a sacrificial work on the cross? You know, it's not just remembering once upon a time that you once believed. It's, it's remembering, you know, you began believing at some point, but you're still believing. You're the believing ones. We're still believers. It's just trust in Him. He's saving us. So we, we're, we're piggybacking on Him. We're trusting in Him. We're, we're resting it. We're coming to Jesus, and we're resting in Him. And if you are not trusting Him to do this for you, what other possible way do you think you can break free from sin and from death and worse yet God's judgment what's your alternative I think the answer often to that is well I just don't believe that stuff well you know I don't have to believe in the sun it doesn't make it fall from the sky I don't have to believe that I'll ever die but I will I don't have to believe that God exists. It's not like he's taking a boat. Who believes I exist? I'll go out of existence if it's the majority that say I don't. Not even human beings respond that way. Can you imagine somebody saying, oh, I don't believe so-and-so exists? Well, have you met them? Well, yeah, I've met them. But I don't believe they exist. Or, no, I haven't met them, so I don't believe they exist. Well, it doesn't change the existence or non-existence of that person. So why do you think God is dependent on your belief? He absolutely is not. You're dependent on him, not the other way around. The third crossroads is light or darkness. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. The word judgment is the word we get crisis from. So, so it's not just 
you know, not just the judgment at the end of the age, but it, it's like the decisive point. It's the, the, the decision point. It's the basis on which judgment is made. This is the crisis. Light has come into the world. That's a historical fact. That's a fact. In fact, that's the way John begins his gospel. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, talking about the word. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. It's still shining. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus himself will testify in John 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light has shone into our world. So what happened? Why didn't everyone come to the light? Well, the answer is at the level of heart desire. People loved darkness rather than light. Well, how is that possible? Why would, would anyone prefer the darkness to the light? He says, because their deeds were evil. Their works are evil. They were injurious. They were harmful. And then he goes on to say, everyone who does wicked or worthless things hates the light, therefore does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed for what they are. The roaches don't like the light. Sin doesn't like the light. We don't want to be exposed for who we are. The power of sin poisons our hearts. When we choose to sin, we think that we are in control. It's a declaration of self-sufficiency and, and self-rule, but not so. When we choose sin, we make ourselves slaves to sin, and our slavery to sin makes us shrink from the light. We don't want the light to expose how worthless and harmful our life choices are. Sin loves the dark. This is why these religious men hated Jesus. It wasn't because they were religious. It's because they were hypocrites. They didn't want to be around someone who so exposed who they actually were. They had a good thing going, kind of like, you know, organized crime, a mafia family. You know, they just, they just, certain things you kept under. Righteousness is just the opposite. Verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In fact, the scriptures talk about us. Once you were darkness, now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light. God the Spirit has given such persons life. We would still, I love the way Tim prayed, we would still be slaves to the darkness were it not for the cross. We would still be slaves to the darkness were it not for the, the life-giving work of the Spirit. If you've heard the truth of the gospel and refused it, here's why you love your sin. You love ruling your own life, and you don't want God to interfere. You don't want to be exposed before God as the sinner that you are. But, but listen, he already knows. He already knows it all. 
You can't get rid of that sin. You could be freed from it. You could be freed from its guilt. You could enjoy unhindered access to God. But you must come to the light. But you have to want it. But if you want it, you can have it. Nobody that wants it is turned away. So end your love affair with sin. It's killing you. Escape the darkness. Choose while you still can. Why face the eternal wrath of God? Why live with the misery that sin brings into our lives any longer? So ask yourself the question, what what are the many ways God has shown the light of the gospel of Christ into your life? I mean, some of you are up in years, and you've heard the gospel since you were a child. And and you've had interventions from God over time. Think think about those ways God has broken into your your life, where the light has shone, the, the dungeon flamed with light. And rehearse that, remember that, revel in that, rejoice in that. On the other hand, what sin or sins, if any, are you trying to protect by staying in the darkness? Now, people say, oh, I've got intellectual problems with, you know, with Christianity, with the Scriptures. No, you don't. It's, it's not intellectual problems. I mean, you may think it's intellectual problems, but the reality is there are enough answers for your questions, and there are more questions for what you do believe than you're willing to admit. It's not a question of whether there's enough evidence. It's a question of who you want in charge of your life. It's a question of whether you want the light of life or whether you want to stay married to your sin. If you have life from God through faith in Christ, then what activities of truth show clearly that God is at work in you? You know, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, and then he told his followers, you are the light of the world. Don't hide it. So so let your light shine before men that they may glorify your Father that's in heaven. So back to Nicodemus, what did Nicodemus do? I mean, the last thing he said in our text was, how can these things be? What's the rest of the story? We have some clues later in John's gospel. In John 7, we read these words. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Speaking of Christ, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Yes. But this crowd does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You know, it takes courage to speak up in an assembly of colleagues openly hostile to what is right. And this group of men are the powerful and influential leaders of the time, personal friends and associates of Nicodemus. By the way, it's much harder not to cave to people who are your friends than people that you don't know from Adam. They were capable of ruining his life and his reputation. So Nicodemus takes huge risk even to suggest that their approach to Jesus is ill-advised but he does it anyway. Our next clue is after the crucifixion of Jesus in John 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who is a disciple of Jesus, 
but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. There are historical legends that report Nicodemus was kicked out of the Sanhedrin and banished from Jerusalem because of his sympathies toward Jesus. We don't know that for sure. But for him to bring spices for Jesus' body was a decided risk that could cost him everything. When those who want to be true disciples of Jesus come to the crossroads, they must deny themselves, in the words of Jesus, take up their cross and follow him. And that's what Jesus taught. If Nicodemus were standing here this morning, he would tell you without reservation that whatever he gave up to follow Jesus was absolutely worth it. The powerful men who set themselves as enemies of Jesus have been dead and gone for centuries, suffering in Hades while they wait the final judgment when they'll be cast into the lake of fire forever. They gained the world for a brief moment, but lost their souls forever. So what about you? Decision time is now. Every one of us comes to this crossroads moment. You must choose. But see that you choose wisely between faith or unbelief, between eternal life condemnation between light or darkness. Crossroads. I want to give you opportunity right now to just talk to the Lord silently. Many of you have come to the crossroads and have trusted in Jesus. Some of you have not. Now's the day. And so I want to give you opportunity to tell the Lord so. I want to give you opportunity to choose faith over unbelief and eternal life over condemnation and light over darkness. Let's pray silently, then I'll lead us in prayer. God, I pray that you would be at work among us. Lord, you know those that are yours. You know those who have yet to receive and believe you. And God, I pray that on this day, April 30, 2023, there would be those sitting here who finally cross over who look to the cross of Jesus at the crossroads of their life and say, I believe. I want eternal life. I want light, not darkness. We pray this in Christ's name who came to rescue people at the crossroads. In his name we pray, amen. Now,
in just a moment, we're going to sing a closing song, but, but let me just say that if this morning you prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, I believe, you trusted in Jesus, you chose eternal life, you chose the light, what, I, what I'd like for you to do is to make sure before you leave this morning that you tell somebody close to you what has happened. It might be your husband, your wife, it might be a sibling, but just tell somebody, let someone else know that you've trusted in Jesus today because they're going to want to be praying with you and walking alongside of you as you grow in the Lord.